So Wesley's distinctive teaching here is able to affirm total depravity without affirming free will, that it's prevenient grace or previous to grace. Okay. Now, the word prevenient comes from uh, French and Latin of this idea that it's grace that God extends to enable us to respond. We used to sing a song that kind of captured this called Amazing Grace. It was grace that taught my heart to fear and grace my fears relieved. The prevenient grace is the grace of God that gives you the awareness of your need and the ability to respond. You get again. Is that only for salvation? Huh? Is well, it's part of God's prevenient grace to all of creation, but it is the it's the Tom Odin said it's the lowest gear in salvation. That it that it enables us to see our need for God and then frees us to be able to respond. So that Jesus is again saying to us that God is the shepherd looking for the sheep. You know, he, he it's his prevenient previous to Grace. We're going to see a little bit more of where I, I think how we can ground that. So, so the idea of prevenient grace is it's grace that God extends uh, previous to salvation to give us both the desire or interest and the ability to respond. Does that make any sense? Now, will that help a person that's ever heard it before? I don't know. I'll give you. A, I'm going to tell you a story here in a couple of minutes um, <clears throat> that might. Give some idea of that, but it's this idea that God is um, previous to our response. Our, in other words, because of the fall, our will and hearts and desires are in rebellion to God. We are fallen. And I said, I think maybe last week, this is one of the doctrines that I think that if the church doesn't recover, uh, we're going to have big problems even more. That human beings are fallen. They're, they're still creating the image of God, but they're fallen. Their desires and drives and interests have been so affected that uh, they're broken. So um, this idea of depravity is able to be, if you will, navigated by prevenient grace. The church fathers teach this, if you're interested. First 400 years, Christostom. Others teach this matter about prevenient grace. And what I'd like to do tonight, and this is on the back page, and we'll kind of move back and forth, that, that uh, Arminius and Wesley believe in prevenient or preparatory grace. Some people think that Calvinism is the theology of grace, but Wesley's theology is stacked with grace. It's prevenient grace. It's justifying grace. It's sanctifying grace. It's living grace. And so Wesley and, Cal, or, or, and Arminius believe in prevenient or preparatory grace. It really comes back to the idea, who makes the first step? Us or God? God. Jesus said in John 4, 6, or 6, 44, no one can come to the Father unless the, unless the Spirit draw, or no one can come to us the Father draw. This is God drawn. Steve, you're going to... I guess where I'm stuck at is just adding the word prevenient to it. Because when I'm, it's, I'm feeling like it's just how I would describe grace. So what does prevenient add to grace? Timing. 
This is a time issue. When does that show up before one responds in salvation? So how would a Calvinist say that you even could respond because you're part of the elect? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Calvin. Calvin would say the only person who can can respond are those those who have had the decree declared that they are to be saved. Okay. They're the only ones that can. Okay. Um, yeah. I think you mentioned last week that birth, and grace. From what I heard was, uh-huh. it was also all the things that God did. <clears throat> Yeah. Yeah. I said this way, and you're right that all the prophets are away. I said last week that prevenient grace needs to be understood from the standpoint of Romans 1. That God has made himself known through creation and conscience. R- Romans 1 says there that what is known about God is clear to them, for God has made it known to them. I think that's correct. And in them. Those prepositions are important. That, that God has not left us without some testimony of Himself. So one is that they know about God through conscience and creation. Romans 2 says that God has written the law on our hearts. Romans 2 says when Gentiles who have not the law do the things that are instructed in the law, they show that the law is written on their heart. And third, through the preaching of Christ, the prophets like that, faith comes from human ability, right? Hearing. See, faith comes from hearing and hearing the Word of Christ. So those are prevenient kind of activities where God is not, or God is, is not leaving the world without some testimony of himself. But it is always the notion that the shepherd's looking for the sheep. It's not the sheep looking for the shepherd. It is the shepherd looking for the sheep. So I want to suggest, and this is that second part we didn't said this. Uh, this is last prevenient grace, grace that enlightens our understanding uh, or our circumstances. And it excites the initial desire to please God. Wesley always talked about it. When prevenient grace starts operating, that suddenly because of God's grace, people are, you know, I'm aware of him. I realize God is there. I think I need to please him. That's God's working in prevenient grace, that kind of that initial desire. Is there a word that's the opposite of prevenient grace? Well, it would be, huh? Predestination. Yeah, yeah. I just love how you say, God, who makes the first move? Yeah. I think that's great because it was always, I felt it was up to me. It was up to you. Yeah, no. You know, that's where I said a couple of times I've had a little kickback here uh, on our, you know, statement. We we help people find and follow Jesus. Wait a minute. (laughs) Jesus is looking for them. Now, but I do think there are people... But there are people who, who do need help to find him because they've been so confused or they've been so uh, abused by others. They do need help. But, but Jesus is trying to find them. You know, Jesus is the shepherds looking for the sheep. So um, I want to say this is where we left off. This is where prevenient or preparatory grace is rooted in. And this is back to your point. I want to try to make this a little um, 
maybe a little more specific. I think uh, prevenient grace from Wesley's standpoint that is rooted in God's character. It's rooted in God's character. Is God truly love? If he is, he cares about everyone. Wesley often said that the doctrine of predestination did too much damage to the nature of God. It, it, it did too much damage that, you know, this might be an overstatement at all, but that, that, it, that one could not assert that God is truly love by any measure that human beings could understand. People say, well, God's love is above... Wait a minute. If we're going to use language to help us understand God, it's got to mean something to human beings. And so Wesley believed God's character. Now, this is not universalism. This prevenient grace, the difference here, it is resistible. One can resist it, and people do. This is because God really loves the world, and God desires a real relationship with people. For Calvin, it seems to me, the fundamental view of God is a sovereign God who receives glory. No question about that. But Wesley sees God as holy love. And Steve, you were referring to this uh, picture. I uh, say it's not universalism. This idea. <clears throat> See, God is not this conglomeration of attributes. Merciful, holy, wrathful, loving, righteous. What He is, is lo- holy love that expresses itself in mercy, and holiness, and sovereignty, and justice. I, I will say it this way. <clears throat> A God could be sovereign and a monster. Sovereign has no moral feature to it. Correct. It's just power. It's just power. Uh, A God, you know, God, or a God could be just and have no moral capacity to understand how that justice is applied. Love is what brings moral character to the attributes of God. And I always grew up thinking I had what I called yeah, but theology. God is love, yeah, but he's also justice. And God seemed to always be in some sense of conflict with himself. Instead of God is love, holy love. And that holy love expresses it in a sovereignty over the world and he was to take care of it. Or God is holy love and His justice is an expression of that love. In other words, He loves the universe so much He's not going to let people get away with something. He loves the universe. You know, God is the God of... So all, all of these things that God is holy love, that's His fundamental or primitive nature. That doesn't mean He's soft. It's not this hallmark, romantic, goofy, gushy idea of love. It's a love that expresses itself in real merciful art in holy love and sovereignty and holiness and, and justice. Wesley saw God more as a father and a physician. This is really indebted to the Eastern Orthodox Church. The Eastern Orthodox Church sees sin fundamentally as an illness. The Roman Orthodox Church, or the Russian Orthodox Church, the Armenian Church, the, the Lebanese that, that, that sin is a sickness. And God is a, is a physician to come and heal us. Not just a sovereign that runs, desires to rule us, 
but one who desires to heal us of this sickness. And so this idea that, if you will, prevenient grace is rooted in God's character. It helps us to understand that he really, really does love us. And that's his interest. A second thing is prevenient grace is rooted in human creation. The image of God is a gift to us. For God to have created created us in his image, what a gift that that God's prevenient grace to create these creatures that have some level of rationality, reflection. You know, uh, Darwin did some of his work on animals, and and I don't know, I've got a dog that I think he should have seen. uh, that he said that one of the things that in his analysis that, that uh, dogs or, or, not, or, or animals could not feel was a sense of guilt. They might be shamed, they may feel shame, but they don't feel guilt. That's a rational response. Part of the image of God is that we can assess and be reflective enough to say, I did something wrong here. That's a gift. I don't think we reflect on that enough to realize that being created in the image of God, what a wonderful gift God gave us. And so part of the prevenient grace is this idea of God creating us with this self-conscious awareness um, uh, to be able to. I wrote in my notes here um, that he's, we said earlier in Romans 1, that he made himself known to them and in them in Romans 1. And so having some capacity of being created in the image of God with a conscience, with reflection, with being able to be self-assessed, those kind of matters. Prevenient grace. Have you ever thought about that? That one of the gifts that God gave us, gave you, gave me, was how He created us in His image. We didn't, we didn't do that. We didn't develop that. That's not something we created or developed. I even said, maybe to you, I can't remember that. If you casually read Genesis, you weren't a theologian, you weren't a Christian, you weren't interested at all. When you look at how those, everything is created and God said, let there be light and there was and let there be animals, let there was. You, you would have to admit that when you got to these creatures called Adam, which is the, the, the name for humanity, it's not a guy's name, Adam, uh, when he creates Adam, remember he creates Adam, male and female, he creates them. He doesn't speak them into existence. He forms them and breathes them into existence. Just a casual reading, go, hey, these are different. <laughs> these things, people, whatever you want to call them, they're different. Because they were formed and this God breathed into them the breath of life. And so, so this creation and the image of God, there, there's something about, if you will, the, the human person, that this fact of God's prevenient grace is, there's a, there's a gift here. And then, of course, pretty simple, I think, prevenient grace is rooted in the work of Christ. Prevenient grace is rooted in the work of Christ. <clears throat> it's in the preaching of Him that faith is generated. Romans 10, 17. Faith comes from hearing and hearing from the Word of Christ. We know where it comes from. It doesn't come from us. It's not something we self-generate. 
It's something that's the response to the declaring of the gospel. And so Jesus Christ, his work, his life, his uh, preached as that matter um, is this prevenient grace that enables us um, uh, to, to able to be responded because of God's work. So in, in every one of these, it is God's work here, not ours. Not ours. And I kind of grew up in it. Well, I grew up in this church. It wasn't, it's not really Wesleyan. <laughs> church of God thinks it is. We're not really Wesleyan. But I, I, this would have been a tremendous load off my shoulders had I known this as a kid, that this is the basis of how one comes to Christ is the prevenient grace of God. Instead of, I better go find him. I better try to figure this out. Instead of responding. To, does that make sense? Do you have a question or a thought on that? Now, one of the differences here, and I won't, <clears throat> won't spend long on this, but this grace, it comes from God, this prevenient grace. And again, Wesley, Arminius, many church fathers uh, speak to this matter about prevenient grace. In, in Reformed theology, which is often thought of Calvinism, but it's bigger than that. It's bigger than that. Reformed theology. <clears throat> There's something <clears throat> similar here. It's called common grace. Now, common grace in the Reformed tradition can never convert you. It just keeps you from eating your own children. You know? And I mean, really, I mean, be kind of being a good, uh, sort of a good human being. So common grace, again, is the I, God that God causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. You know what Jesus said in the, from that? So in, in, in Calvinism or Reformed theology, again, I, I think it's bigger than that, but that, that there is this notion of common grace, but it has no ability to save. It, it can't bring that about. There's another interesting feature in, in Reformed thought, and I always kind of mess up the pronunciation, but it's called evocent. Let me right, right, say it right. Evocent grace. I'll spell it E-V-A-N-E-S-C-E. Evocent? Is that how you pronounce it? E V A N. E-S-C-E-N-T. Evanescent grace. Evanescent. Evanescent. I, I knew how to say that. Evan, that's it. Yeah, evanescent. I could do that. Evanescent grace is... Um, if you're like, you really, Evanescent grace is grace... I'm just going to tell you what, what he said. Is grace that God gives the reprobate or the lost for a little while... And then takes it away to increase their damnation. And so a person would appear to be saved. Could you spell it again? Yeah, it's E-V-A-N-E-S-C-E-N-T. And Dan, I've got this, I've got the I've got it where it's in his institutes. <clears throat> uh, I, I'll get it to you later. Uh, this is this is the grace that God would give to a reprobate for a while, and they would manifest fruits of the spirit, good works, and then God would remove it. Why? Well, here's the here's here's a here's an Armenian explanation. <laughs> Maybe we'll go back to Calvin on this. Because in, in Reformed theology, if anyone 
get saved, if you will, and at some time later blows out, the answer to that is what? They were never saved. So Armenians and Westerns will say, Calvin and them did this to plug a hole. That people they knew really did appear to be saved and demonstrate that kind of life for some time. Maybe for years. And then they blow out because of that fifth part of the tulip, total depravity, unlimited, you know, perseverance of the saint. He could, or she, he or she could have never been saved. Right. And, and, and because they couldn't be elect, because the elect have to persevere. Let me just, this is really interesting. This, and so Arminians would say, well, Calvin did this to plug a hole because he saw, that he knew people that demonstrated every evidence that they were saved. That scares me to death. To think that a person... So, so, but here's the thing. What, what Reformed... And this is my assessment. Don't have thoughts and opinions. Not necessarily thoughts and opinions across the community church. I've almost got that memory. I bet you do. You've been in my class long enough. Uh, both Calvin and Luther... Oh, sorry. Calvin and Wesley believe what, John, what Matthew 10 says. He that endures to the end, the same will be saved. They both believe that. It's just in the Reformed tradition, they're saying, we know you're going to persevere because you're the elect. So that's on the front end. How do they know who the elect are? They don't. Because again of this, they say, well, the fruits indicate that, wait a minute, people that have evanescent grace will demonstrate the fruits. So that's not going to answer it. So, I've always said, instead of fighting too hard on this, I say, look, the Reformed say we know who's going to persevere to the end. And Wesley says, Those, we know who will persevere to the end but because they are the elect. We know who will persevere because they are the... And Wesley says, we know that those who persevere to the end are the elect. Where do you end up? Same place. Okay. So the, the, the Reformed tradition says, or like, we know you will persevere to the end because you are the elect. Well, you better. But Wesley would say, we know that those who persevere to the end are the elect. So they both know, and it's part of the tulip, perseverance of the saints. This is not a decision, a card, a baptism moment. This is a life of following Jesus. Some of the, yeah, that's kind of the common phrase of that. But, but again, this, this is what some would say that, that, that the Reformers are trying to plug a hole here with evanescent grace to say, well, they were never saved. I just, again, I, I, don't, I have some wonderful good friends that are Reformers. I just said, that scares me to death, that, that you could be that fooled for years and at the end blow out and realize, I, I was never saved. Why? Because I was never decreed to be saved before the foundation of the world. Steve? There was a preacher that I really loved that doing a couple of the Bible studies and stuff that he had. People said he was Calvinist. And it's like, well, I'm not sure. And I was learning about Calvinism or Armenian. I went and saw it was his church in Denton, Texas. 
<laughs> in, in person. And uh, he's talking about something just like this. And then he goes back to uh, the Testament, but, but then the dog returns to his father. Mm -hmm. And that left me for a few days. Yeah, I messed up. Yeah. Right. Right. Well, and first, you know, first John says, you know, they went out from among us because they were never part of us. I don't think you can ascribe from that statement in 1 John that anybody that falls away was never part of you. I think John is speak, speaking specifically of a Gnostic issue that's going on in that church that they're fighting and arguing against because he's saying whoever does not confess that Jesus Christ came in the flesh is Antichrist. This is not just the idea of salvation. This is the idea of people have snuck their way into fellowship. This Gnostic group that's kind of working their way and that Jesus didn't come in the flesh. He was just a phantom. That's what first John's fight. They're not, he's not fighting all the issue about who's saved, who's not saved. There's some of that, but this is a bigger issue. These people went out from among because they were never part of us. They never were part of faith in Christ. They were denying that Jesus had come in the flesh. He was a phantom. This is the Ebionite uh, uh, heresy, yeah. I don't know if this is like a known debate or not. Like Judas Iscariot, mm -hmm. the Western the council views on his, his whole deal, or did they just say he never was? Mm -hmm. Or did the Western say, well, he had a chance, he had the mm -hmm. three years with him, yeah. and at the end decided not to? Or how would that work? Yeah, I don't, I, I'd have to think about how Wesley, if he's read, written about this, but it, 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 I think the general assessment is this that. He knew, you know, the writer of uh, Luke, I believe it is, Luke says that, that uh, Judas was a thief. He stole from the purse. And so it's very likely that this, was, this guy was chosen and he made some bad choices and refused to follow in what he was learning. It's a, it's a troublesome passage. I, I will give an example of Jesus showing the evanescent grace to a, one of the twelve, like allowing him to I don't think it'd be that because Jesus wouldn't re remove any grace to him. Evanescent grace is it's removed. Okay. Yeah, it, it's pulled out. It's pulled away from the person. And so it's not, I would say that, that Judas in one sense had more judgment on him because he had every opportunity in the world. But no, I wouldn't think that's evanescent because I don't, you know, Jesus offers him the sop at the very meal. And it's, it's a troublesome passage. I, I don't mean to minimize it at all. But at the end, he felt so badly Oh, yeah, none. The gospel tells us, you know, whenever he, I guess, made his decision, the devil entered him. How'd that happen? You know, how'd that? That wasn't anything on Jesus' part. This guy's opening himself up to all kinds of influences. So, I think that's, yeah. So let's go to four.
And we're going to keep working here. Thank you. Good questions. Um, here we go. Four. Again, we may be a little out of, out of whack on our schedule. So if we don't get through with four tonight, we'll, we'll be all right. Um, I always want to remind you, again, we, we're, we're followers of Jesus first. And we just believe that John Wesley's a helpful guide. Uh, we're not we're not idolizing him or making him the only answer. You know, I one of the things that I love about John Calvin, um, when when you think about Calvin's, I again Wesley believed, and I do too. I think I think Calvin may have in some ways gone too far in some areas. But think about this. I think, and if you're interested, uh, Scott McKnight and others at North uh, Seminary have written this. I think perhaps Calvin may have gone a little too far on God's sovereignty to the point of meticulous sovereignty. You know, the Westminster Catechism on question seven says, what are the decrees of God? Everything that happens with respect to human beings and angels. Car wrecks, girlfriend, boyfriends getting killed. Everything. That, that's what we call meticulous sovereignty. There are several gradations of sovereignty. We, I believe in God's sovereignty. I don't necessarily believe in meticulous sovereignty. The flight the, of the butterfly. The what? The flight pattern of the butterfly. Yeah, yeah the flight pattern. Yeah, everything, everything. But I do appreciate, Calvin, when you think about this, Calvin is trying to locate salvation away from the Catholic Church. They're the ones that say, you get involved with this rabble, we'll kick you out of the church and you'll go to hell because we, we got the keys to the kingdom. We own salvation. And Calvin says, wait a minute. God is sovereign over salvation. And he wrestles salvation away from the Roman Catholic Church and gives people the courage to believe that they can be part of this reformation without going to hell. He does a fantastic job of relocating where sovereignty is. It's in God. But again, this notion of meticulous sovereignty is where people begin to say, wait a minute, I'm not sure the Bible teaches that. I'm not sure the Bible teaches that, that everything that happens is somehow ordained or decreed by God. If it is, there's some real moral dilemmas here. Real moral dilemmas that occur. So I want to give him credit for that. I, that's a wonderful thing to finally realize, wait a minute, God is the one who's sovereign of salvation. The Roman Catholic Church can kick you out. God will keep you safe, yeah. So I know this will seem weird, but many years ago there was the movie with George Burns. Oh, yeah. And part of part of the deal in the movie was that he was saying, "Look, I put you here. I put everything here. Y'all handle all the little stuff, yeah. and then on the big stuff, I'll step in." Yeah. So I mean, that's kind of what you're saying here in a way. If, uh, that the performance <coughs> or Calvinism think that's not really the way it is. That God manipulates everything that yeah. goes on, knows everything, yeah. determines everything, determines everything in our day to day life. Yeah. Where you're saying Westland more or less said, not really. I mean, we're, we're, it's not, not to that particular point. What, what I'm saying is, Wesley would believe God is completely sovereign. 
again, when you say he's sovereign, the next question is, what does that mean? Okay, okay what, what does that mean? It means he has determined and, and manages how the universe will operate. Okay? He has determined and he manages the conditions of salvation. He's determined. It's through faith in Jesus Christ. He made the way. He made the plan. He is sovereign over the fact that, um, that this world will end on His terms. He is sovereign in the sense that He will always work with the people of God. So He's sovereign in a lot of areas. It's not like... I want to be careful that you can get to, we can get to deism where God's kind of out there. He kind of wound the clock up and left. He's sovereign. He's managing. He's involved. He's working all things together for our good to those who are called according to Romans 8.28. We know that God is causing all things to work together. It doesn't say all things are good. There's some terrible things. But he says he's working all things together for our good. So He's sovereignly involved and working and involved in our lives. But it doesn't mean the, the disease that we got, He put it on us. It means that the disease that we got, we then respond to Him and look to Him and He'll work all of that together for our good. Roger Olson, who's a great Armenian scholar, teaches down at Baylor. Roger said he believed that that showed God's power was greater than if God has just scripted everything out. That God must be incredibly powerful to have these creatures that have the ability to rebel against Him, to not do what He wants, and for Him still to be able to work His plan. Olson says, God must have incredible power and wisdom. Because C.S. Lewis said, God is so great, He could create a creature that could resist Him. See, God in His sovereignty said, I'm going to give you some freedom. Nobody made Him do that. But if that's not the case, then, then really there's only one will in the universe. God. He wills what the devil does. He wills what we do. He wills everything. There's one will in the universe. I think that's a little hard to take, to think. One will. Anyway, so, okay, now, uh, in talking about this prevenient grace, let me, let me take us on further. Uh, then uh, Wesley refers to universal offer of salvation. Universal offer of salvation. This is not, I think here again, here we go, the topic, got too many slides here. This is not universalism. It's not a universal salvation, it's a universal offer. It's not universal where everyone's a child of God and everybody goes to heaven. No, no. But here's what Wesley on A here, this right here. Wesley believes the solution to the human condition matches the problem of the human condition. What's the human condition? Everyone has fallen. There's universal sin. And so the solution to the human condition matches the problem 
of the human condition. And so, say it this way, prevenient grace is based in the nature of God truly loves the world. Truly loves the world. 2 Corinthians 5 says, that for anyone is Christ, he's new creation, hold is gone. But he says earlier, God was in Christ. Now, well, listen to this language here. God, let me get it right here in front of me. I think it's 520. 2 Corinthians 5.20. This is a staggering statement. Yeah. Uh, talks about what he said, namely, it's 5.19. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Not counting their trespasses against them. You ever read that? Second Corinthians five nineteen. It starts at eighteen. So now all these things. When he says, "Therefore, if anyone is Christ, he's new creation. The old has passed away." Um, now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to Himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Name that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to Himself. There's no need to reconcile God to the world. God is reconciled to the world. He loves the world. But He's reconciling the world to Himself. Not counting their trespasses against them. And He has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors of Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you, be reconciled. To God. It isn't universalism, it is well, God's reconciled the world himself, not counting their sin that great. Hey, hey, we're all going to heaven. No. He said he's reconciled the world to himself. And we now have this ministry of reconciliation. We beg you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. And so this idea here, it's prevenient grace that God really loves the world. He truly does. And I don't think you can use the word the word cosmos throughout the New Testament refers constantly to not only the physical world, not only the physical world, but the world that is set against God in opposition to him. Where the Bible says, "Do not love the world nor the things in the world." Wait a minute. The things wait, what is the world then if the Okay, I know what the things are, money, fame, cars, you know, stuff like that. But it says, don't love the world. The world is a way of life in opposition to God. It's always understood as this system, this rebellion against God. And so he truly loves the world. The other thing, prevenient grace, Wesley believed that the presence of prevenient grace made the offer of salvation universal. Made it, <clears throat> made it universal. Um, so prevenient grace enlightens one understanding of their circumstances. Several verses here. Enables one to have the initial desire to please God. We already, we already kind of said that. I had a debate with a 
wonderful guy. He's a reformed guy. And we had a debate and he, as we got to talking, he said, well, you're, you are the guys that believe in free will. And I said, that's, that's not true. We're the ones who believe in free grace. Not, not free will. Hmm. No, that's not true. Now, sadly, our good old Nazarene brothers and Church of God brothers, and I'm trying to be. We always talked about free will, free will, free will, free will, free will, you know, because we just didn't understand Wesley. We thought we did. But Wesley's teaching is free grace. That, that there is no need to consider who's eligible you know, all the world. When Jesus said, go into all the world and preach the gospel. And so it's not free will, it's free grace. But now let me, I wrote this here because I, in my research over the years, I've realized this, that I got to be careful. We got to realize that prevenient grace is not a commodity. It's not a thing. It's God's personal activity in the world the Holy Spirit. It, it's not a thing. It's not a commodity. It's almost Steve a little bit, you know, like you say, okay, prevenient grace and just trying to get on. It's what we talk about. But it is God's gracious activity in our lives drawing us to Himself. We, we can never make this kind of abstract. You know, this is the kind of God we're talking about who is working to make himself active in our lives through conscience, through creation, through the preaching of Christ. So that this matter of understanding it's his personal activity, this kind of God we're talking about. Does that make sense? Because we're not careful talking about prevenient grace, prevenient grace. It sort of gets kind of like a commodity or a thing instead of this one who seeks to save the lost. I think uh, this, again, has to do with um, this prevenient grace is God's enlightenment, enabling. How does God enlighten us of our sin and our need? Through the Holy Spirit. Remember in John when Jesus said, when He, the Spirit of truth, has come, He will convince the world of their sin. I'm, con- I'm, I'm convinced. I'm convinced the word convict could be not the best translation. Because the Holy Spirit doesn't come to convict. He comes to convince. Hey, this is wrong. Hey, you need to respond. And the Greek word elegko, it can often be translated convince. And that's that work of prevenient grace of God's presence through the Holy Spirit to do what? To convince us. When he said he will convince of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Because sin, because they don't believe in me. And so <clears throat> this idea of prevenient grace is God's enlightenment. You got it here. And then enablement. When we think of convicting, I did as a kid. Man, when I got convicted, I felt terrible. I just felt like a bum. You bum. Instead of, hey, Cliff, listen, 
I want you to see, you need to understand this. You need to be convinced that this is wrong. There's no value in convicting you if it's wrong. If you're not convinced it's wrong, you just feel like a bum. But if God convinces us, then we respond. So I want to get to something because I got a verse here. It usually shocks people. So prevenient grace is the key to Wesley's thought. This grace is extended to all and requires some response of cooperation. Prevenient grace is not irresistible. Now, you know, this is my opinion. But I think that speaks to the, to the matter that God created a creature like him. Not a robot. Not an automaton. But someone with whom God could have a real relationship. A real relationship... <coughs> is not necessarily equal, but each must participate in the relationship. And you know, I used to hear people say, you know, that, that uh, you know, uh, your relationships with others are unconditional. That's not true. There's no such thing as an unconditional relationship. You could love me like crazy and I reject it. If that's not a relationship, You may love me unconditionally, but we don't have an unconditional relationship. Because for me to be in a relationship with you, I have to be willing to respond. Right? Now, I'm not, you know, people say, well, you're saying, you know, we're our own self. Listen, Jesus, second person of the Trinity, comes and lives on the earth, suffers, dies, rises from the dead, defeats Satan and all that, and I respond. You think those are equal responses? Come on. No, they're not equal, but they're necessary because there's no such thing as an unconditional relationship. Not even in our world with us. Somebody could love you, respond to you, want to be with you, and you say, forget it, not interested. And so this enablement for us to have this relationship and cooperation, it's not irresistible. It's just not irresistible. Um, <clears throat> here's some verses you want to write down. This later. This relates to the idea of grace is resistible. In 1 Corinthians 15, and I'll read it to you real quick. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 and 2. Um, when he says right here, he said, um, Now I therefore make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you also, you receive in which you stand, and which also you are saved if you hold fast the word which I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. It's, it's not irresistible. You, you could do it in vain. 2 Corinthians 6 1. 2 Corinthians 6 1. Where the writer says this. Um, wait a minute, what am I looking at here? That's the wrong passage. It's right here in this section, Cliff. Where is it? I'll find it. Mm-mm-mm. Did I say 2 Corinthians or 1st? 2 Corinthians. That's why I'm looking in 1st. That's why it's a little hard. To, that's why it's harder to find. 
It's not impossible. It's not impossible, but more difficult. Yeah. Second, yeah. Second, the sixth one. And work, and we are working together with him. We urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain. And then Galatians 4.11. In other words, there's some cooperation here. There's some cooperation. And again, I think it's because we talk a lot about this, but we don't explain. Because Christianity is a relationship. I hear people throw that around time and I say, tell me what that means. And they look at me like, huh? It's just Christianese. Nobody's ever thought, wait a minute. It means that I am in a personal relationship with God in which I have participated in responding to his overtures and direction and guidance. That's what it is. You can go to church and not do that. You can give money to the church and not do that. You can be a moral person and not do that. But I'm responding personally to the offer that he made to me to direct and guide my life on a day-to-day basis. That's the personal relationship. <laughs> I used to, students would say to me, Dr. Sanders, Kaylee, 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 I'll get it. I know. Um, there's a diphthong in your name, A-I, and I can never get it. In Greek, diphthongs, A-R-I. I. A-I in Greek is I. Kaylee. That diphthong keeps... I got to tell you, by the way, Josh Hernandez sent me an email. This is me. Um, I know. What was I saying? Oh, students will say to me, Dr. Sanders, I just want you to know something. I just asked Jesus into my heart. I go, what does that mean? Huh? I mean, what does all, that mean for real? All this Christian ease kind of language that I think, what do you mean by I, I think I know what I mean anyway, but this idea of cooperation. Um, I got to give you a verse and we'll get out of here. Oh, the solution because of the work of Christ. The solution is this, this universal salvation because of the work of Christ. You got your Bibles. I want you to see this verse. Go to your table of contents or your phone or whatever. Go to 2 Peter. 2 Peter. In my Bible, here we go. 1168. 2 Peter chapter 2. Here we go. Somebody read 2 Peter 2. 1. Let's see. Yeah. Well, it's one to three, but read, read just verse one. But there were also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who brought and bought them, bringing swift destruction. What does it say the sovereign Lord did? Bought them. Who did he buy? The false prophets. Who did he buy? The false prophets who deny him. That Greek word agora there is the word, the term of the marketplace. I've talked to people here. I, I think people have not seen this. Look at that again. False prophets also arose among them and there will also be false teachers among you who will introduce destructive heresies. Even denying, I'm reading on American Standard, the master who bought them. 
universal salvation. Who'd Jesus die for? Everybody. Who'd he die for? Everybody. Now, I know the argument sometimes is, well, if Jesus died for everyone and everyone's not saved, that's dishonoring. Have you read the Gospels? This is the one who was born in a feed trough. This is the one that scraped out a a life in a backwater town in Galilee. This is the one that didn't have two nickels to rub together when he died. You kidding me? You think think he's worried about that? He was willing to humble himself, empty himself, and live the life of a peasant to save the world. There's nothing honoring unless he's a Greek God. Now, that's the Greek God idea. They got to get their way. They got to have everything happen the way they want it. This is the God that humbled himself so lowly that you couldn't go any lower than that. So he's willing to die and did for false prophets. You ever read that? Most people don't hang around this passage much. I can remember teaching a few times ago and people, wait, whoa, hold it, hold it, hold it. I said, no, that's false prophets. They are introducing destructive heresies denying the master, denying it. Who bought them? So this idea of this universal work of Jesus, that, that it is this a solution because of the work of Jesus. Let me see if I got it right here. Uh, other verses, let me give you some other. In Hebrews 2.9, it says that Jesus tasted death for everyone. Now, that didn't mean he just kind of rolled, some, tried to roll it around. He died. <laughs> okay? He didn't just taste it in the sense like he kind of rolled it around in his mouth. People try to make that say, well, that just means you rolled it around. Didn't really, didn't really swallow it. That's not true. He died. He tasted death for everyone. John 1.9, he was the true light that gives light to every person coming into the world. Titus 2.11, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. And you know, Wesley would always talk about when we read the Bible, and I know, I know some of the arguments here, all men meaning all categories. I... You're going to have to explain to me how anthropos here, pan anthropos, means categories. Wesley will say the common sense reading doesn't mean that you don't consult other things, but when it says, for God so loved the world, when it says God was reconciling the world to himself, that the salvation of God has appeared to all men, bringing salvation to all people. He died for the false. I think you have to come to some conclusion that there is some sense here in which the solution of universal salvation is because of the work of Jesus. It was an adequate sacrifice for every person that's ever lived and every sin that's ever been committed. And to me, I say hallelujah. Mm-hmm. 
Glory to God. Oh, you know, I don't like gospel quartet music. My dad wonders if I'm ever going to go to heaven over it. I just don't like four-part harmony. I know. But there was an old quartet music song that I hear. Oh, what a Savior. Oh, hallelujah. His side was, his heart was broken on Calvary. His hands were nail pierced. His side was riven. He did it all for you and me. That song kind of reverberates in my head. You ought to go Google it. It's called, Oh, What a Savior. Some of the quartets that sang it, the, the um, Kingsman, the Blackwood Brothers and all, they'll blow it out when they do that. Don't like it. Like the lyrics. I don't know. I don't know what it is about court. I just don't. I like trios. I like ensembles. I know. I, my dad always said, my dad passed away. He said, I, I don't know, son. I don't know. It's a, it's a touch and go here. But I, 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 I want to be in the rock and roll section of heaven. I like, I like rock and roll. But anyway, but, but this idea of this Savior who did this for all, that we can go with good confidence and offer this to anyone and everyone, anywhere and everywhere. That's why Wesley often said, the world's my parish. I can preach in the street. I can preach in the field. I don't have to preach in a church. He believed the glad tidings of salvation were for everyone. So 